You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here today, Tuesday morning. Yes, we are doing a second podcast already this week um, here on the Westwood One Network. And there's a reason for that. Just as we got finished dealing with the assault by the courts on our national sovereignty, our ability as a nation to protect ourselves, it turns out that Republicans, the rumors were true indeed, they are about to launch an assault on our individual sovereignty, our right to protect ourselves, the unalienable right that even predated the Second Amendment of self-defense. As many of you noted, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback a couple weeks ago, the House of Representatives passed a bill, the so-called Fix Nick's bill, that would exacerbate the existing problems with the Nick system, but they paired it together with a concealed carry reciprocity bill and basically told members, hey, this is a good deal. We're going to go you know, have the Fix Nick's, but we'll get major pro-gun legislation. Meanwhile, at the time, we had Representative Thomas Massey on our show, and he was everywhere warning that what you're going to get is just the Fix Nick's bill in the Senate, and they're going to wait until the next shooting to politicize, and they'll slam it on the floor without reciprocity. And lo and behold, yesterday, John Cornyn, the Senate Majority Whip hotline, it's known as a hotline to fast track the Fix Nick's bill to the floor without any of the due process fixes, and certainly without reciprocity. So I felt, you know what, rather than hear from me again, and I'm losing my voice once again from just yapping around so much the last couple days, who better to bring on than Representative Thomas Massey himself, the chairman of the Second Amendment Caucus. Hey, Thomas, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Daniel. I, I was hoping back when we talked about this several weeks ago that I was wrong. I was hoping I was wrong, but I felt uh, sick to my stomach because I knew I was going to be right. And here we are, just as you said, I told people this was a Trojan horse. I told people in the House, the only reason they're voting on reciprocity now is to get your hands dirty. You will have voted for fixed nicks inside of reciprocity there after the next shooting they're going to bring this thing at the speed of light, and that's about how fast they're trying to move it. They're going to bring it at the speed of light back to the House without reciprocity in it. And by the way, Cornyn isn't the only sponsor. It's got Feinstein and Schumer as co-sponsors. And anybody that knows anything about guns has been, and has been tracking Congress knows what that means. So here comes, you know, they're, they're trying to hotline it over there in the Senate. They, there were objections I heard by three senators Kennedy, Lee, and Paul, and um, we'll we'll see how this plays out. Because uh, what what happens when a senator objects to something that's tr- they're trying to hotline? It costs them three more days of floor time, or up to three more days, and so they you know that's going to slow them down. Thankfully, in the Senate, but I predicted this, and when it comes over here in the House, they're going to tell these guys 
guys you voted for it before. I know it was part of reciprocity, but now it's an election year and it's really important and we got to have this. So just vote for it. And that's, I'm, I'm just very fearful. That's what we're going to see in the next few days. Wow. So that's a very important update. If they do hold the line and block the fast track process, at least will give us you know, a couple of days to get out the word. And, and I think that's exactly the point, that people are looking for a counter narrative. Who is giving the other side to the story? Um, what I'm particularly surprised about here is that, you know, in the ensuing days since the Parkland shooting, every day we find out more details demonstrating the malfeasance from the sheriff's office, the FBI, both on catching the guy initially when um, he was reported, I mean, so many times to them with very credible, specific warnings of a school shooting. And then at the shooting itself, at the event itself, now four deputies that were there but did, did not go into the building and attempt to apprehend or take down the shooter, this seems to be yet another example of how the narrative about gun control is completely a hoax. But do you see signs that your colleagues in the House and Senate are emboldened by the latest news to actually launch a counter narrative on the need to actually keep our schools safe and go after gun free zones or has the clamor to pander not a, uh, a bit, has it not been attenuated at all well <laughs> some of my colleagues are like the deputy sheriffs there in Florida, they don't. They're waiting for this issue to burn itself out. They don't want to go in and, and take fire. So uh, I've decided to to go into the building because I went on uh, Meet the Press, a show that I've turned down several times because I know it's liberal and biased. But I went on it yesterday into the belly of the beast to get the word out and to start trying trying to change this narrative. And before I went on Meet the Press, um, the night before, I called two Columbine survivors. And one of them told me his harrowing story of being the first kid shot in the library and how he climbed under a desk and hid himself. And he heard the perpetrators shooting other students. And then they came to him and he, he had heard them shooting other students begging for their lives. And he begged for his life, pleaded for his life and they spared him. He ran out and he took cover behind a shed with two policemen who were out there. And If you remember, the protocol at the time was wait for the negotiations to start. Nobody anticipated, just like before 9-11, you know, they thought the hijackers would negotiate for something. Nobody anticipated this kind of tragedy. But here's what the reason I tell you all that is I wanted to know what his solution was. He thinks he says he forgives the teachers. He he forgives the faculty, the legislators, the law enforcement officers, because none of them could anticipate Columbine in 1999. He said, but it's almost 20 years later, and he's disgusted, offended, and angry that the legislation that's being proposed won't do anything to stop another Columbine, and the people that are offering it know that. I mean, there's not a school shooting this century that the background checks have stopped or could have stopped. And, you know, that's a statistic that John Locke gave me. He's, he's a foremost expert on these gun statistics. But think about all the, I mean, that's why this is so disingenuous. Uh, in Connecticut, the shooter took his mother's guns, killed her, and then took his mother's guns to the school. In Columbine, they, the background checks wouldn't have worked because they used straw purchasers. They got an 18-year-old to buy him three long guns, 
and they got a, a 22-year-old to buy their pistol. And by the way, there was an assault weapons ban at the time of Columbine. It was the deadliest shooting in, huh. uh, in the history, school shooting. I forgot about and that. And there was an assault weapons ban. Yeah, think about that. That was 1999. The assault weapons ban was passed in 94. It had been in place for five years. And it doesn't matter if you would have raised the age on assault weapons. There was an outright ban on them at the time. So, there's, I mean, just go back. If you were to create a chart of all the school shootings, or mass public shootings for that matter, and look at the proposals, like this Cornyn bill, and say, okay, which one of these would it have stopped? You won't be able to check anything off on the chart. So I guess the question for you is this. You know, we understand, you know, our audience totally gets the gun narrative. Um, They understand the malfeasance of the left politicizing the issue. How do you address someone like President Trump, who, on the one hand, he seems to, you know, get the common sense nature of the need to arm the teachers. Um, He is supportive of, obviously, right to carry. But at the same time, he somehow seems to think that, look, we could even loosen gun laws on law-abiding citizens, but we got to make sure that the mentally ill and the bad guys don't get a hold of it. Um, What would you say to him about the Cornyn bill and some of these other proposals on why the, quote-unquote, universal or expanded background checks would not prevent bad guys from getting the guns. Well, look, I, I supported the president, and I support him on most things. But let's face it, he's not an ideologue, okay? He's, he's more of a populist, and I think right now he feels, he feels this sentiment. And the problem is, and he should know better than this, there's an echo chamber in the media. And what the media is projecting, and they're just keeping it up because they, they think they can and they maybe have affected the president. They're trying to convince him that most people want more gun control, when in fact, what they want is safer schools. And we know that none of the plans out there would be safer schools. So, you know, I, I support the president on his idea of arming teachers. But, uh, you know, when he says to raise the age to purchase a, a, a rifle, long to 21, there's a constitutional problem with that. If we go back to Heller, the Heller decision, which you know as well or better than me about that decision, it basically the, the, the local constabulary in D.C., I don't want to give them too much legitimacy, but the local constabulary in D.C. had passed so many gun laws that it would, they had basically extinguished your any ability to keep and bear arms. And so what the Supreme Court ruled was that you can't have bans that effectively take away the Second Amendment. Well, think about what the president's proposed. He's proposed raising the age for long guns to 21, while the age for handguns is already at 21. That means a 20-year-old mother is going to have her right to keep and bear arms completely extinguished. I don't think that's going to withstand um, constitutional scrutiny. No, ab- absolutely. And you're, you're cutting out a little bit on us here. But I think your point is that, you know, we have rights in this country. Now, obviously, there is a certain legal age for, for you know, drinking, for, for voting, um, to arbitrarily raise it to 21 based on a narrative. What I find so interesting, Thomas, is that if we're going to be driven very myopically, very limited based on one or two aspects of specific isolated events rather than broad public policy trends. So the biggest mass shooting we had by far was the Las Vegas shooting. 
The guy was 63 years old. Um, nothing about what happened there matched anything. And we still don't have a motive. They said maybe we'll have one next October, I think the Vegas Police Department said. How come no, none of your colleagues are raising questions as to what happened in Las Vegas, and yet they're talking about bump stocks? No, oh, it's a great question. Look, um, <laughs> the uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee proposed to me that, you know, oh, we're looking at uh, banning these things, which, by the way, if it's going to be banned, it should happen in Congress. It shouldn't happen at the White House. I don't believe the power's vested over there. Sure. But I asked him, I said, okay, I think there was fully automatic gunfire in Las Vegas. Do you have, has the FBI given you a list of weapons, how many of them jammed? It, was there a fully automatic gun there? And he said, I don't know. And he asked his staffer, and she said, no, we haven't asked them that. So literally, there's, there's been very <laughs> little due diligence here in Congress, even before proposing a ban on a firearm accessory. Um, it's just this, this I don't, astounding. But the question, but like you said, you know, <laughs> the thing that's more troubling is the motive there. Um and uh, you're right. My colleagues, and particularly the chairman, just seem completely and wholly uninterested in what really happened. We have we received a briefing, by the way, congressional briefing in a closed, you know, room, uh, classified briefing on Orlando. We received one in San Bernardino. We've never received one for Vegas. Wow, th- th- that's that's a big deal. Uh, again, just just so our listeners understand. The media is having us believe that mass shootings is the foremost public policy issue of our time. And certainly, I don't want to diminish the loss of life. But, you know, and again, in a country of 325 million, we have a lot of problems. We have, you know, 65 million people died of opioids, mainly heroin and fentanyl from Mexico, by the way. Sanctuary City is a big part of that. House Judiciary just did a, a hearing on that. Um, you know, you have the MS-13 crisis. But it seems like we only focus on whatever the media and the Democrats say, so Republicans will kind of be the rear end. They'll, they'll follow. Okay, so then the, the biggest school shooting was Parkland, and now we find out it was more even, – even if you believe in gun control, it was very much more rooted in malfeasance or at least gross negligence on the part of law enforcement there locally. And the Vegas shooting is shrouded in mystery beyond belief and doesn't fit the bill of – you know any of the shootings, according to anyone trying to politicize it from any angle, and yet they're so certain about what to do. Um, here's what I don't understand, Thomas. Every other right, including BS rights, is subject to s- strict scrutiny of the Constitution. So courts have told us recently that an illegal could come in from Mexico um, for the express purpose of having an elective abortion, and Anything short of HHS directly driving her to the abortion clinic, meaning even if they were to release her to a third party and have that person uh, have her access an abortion, that's a burden on a fundamental right. But yet we could all just just shoot at the Second Amendment like a pinata and just, hey, let's let's have me some of this, some of that. I mean, it, it, does yeah. the Constitution not matter? Well, that's the, let me let me go back to this Cornyn bill. I call it the Corner Schumer Feinstein bill, um, and talk about the problem there where they're shooting at the Second Amendment. I've had two field workers from the Veterans Administration call me 
I don't know if they meet the legal definition of a whistleblower, but they don't want me using their names. Uh, and they, they've described to me how veterans' rights to own a gun have, are being stripped of them, much like they were at the Social Security Administration before we countermanded that with the Congressional Review Act. We haven't undone the, the VA gun ban, if you will. And it's going on today. I mean, they sent me casework with names redacted of like, recent casework. This was in December when they were telling me about the problem when this whole fixed mix thing came up first inside of reciprocity. And here's the problem. You've got the lowest learners of the world adjudicating, if, if you can even use that word. I don't think you should, but you've got the lowest learners of the world at the VA deciding, based on your interview, when you said whether somebody helps manage your finances or not, whether you are mentally competent to own a firearm. There is no other right that, that can be taken away from you permanently in that manner. Now, people say, and this is to your point about how all the other rights are sacrosanct, but they, they just trot all over the Second Amendment. People say, well, there's a process at the VA where you can get your amendment, Second Amendment rights back. There's a process to get them back. Can you imagine if, you're, if the First Amendment worked that way? Like, sorry, you, uh, you've lost your First Amendment. We need you to be quiet for a couple of years. There's a process you can go through to get the right to speak back. But that's what the equivalent. Wow. That, I mean, th that's a big deal because the Social Security Administration fix um, that, you know, they went through with the Congressional Review Act, and I believe the House did bring up the VA fix, um, but the Senate has never brought it up, and there's no agreement to bring it up. And right. basically, you had the ACLU, which is not a big proponent of the Second Amendment. They're, they're often pretty silent on that. They don't care too much for it. They spoke out against this, um, you know, stripping of their rights without due process. So this was a pretty bipartisan effort um, that everyone seemed to recognize was a problem. And now they're just maniacally saying, fix nicks, fix nicks um, at all costs. What do you say to those that want to use Sutherland Springs and say, hey, you know, you see there is a problem with um, mm -hmm. coordination, communication between various government agencies in that case? Mm -hmm. The military did not put the name of this individual into the system, and we need some way of at least just incentivizing them to put in the existing names that belong under existing categories. That, well, you, you know, maybe well, we're not going to expand categories, but under existing categories, we need to enforce current law better. What do you say to those are people? You, are, you, uh, are you talking about Texas? Are you talking about Florida? Which. Uh... The, the, the Sutherland Which, Springs guy, the, the, the guy in Texas that was discharged okay, from yeah, the military. I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you asked about that one. That's what I thought you meant. Because he, at least there was an adjudication to, through some court or form of court that our founding fathers would recognize, right? It was a military court. And what I would say to people who said, say that we need to improve it so that um, you know, Sutherland Springs doesn't happen again, I say, okay. If you want to go lean on the Article Three federal courts, the military courts, and the state courts to submit names of people who've been adjudicated uh, in, in, a, in a judicial process, okay, um, okay, I'm all right with that. I think you, you get a false sense of security. I think it's an unserious way to address mass shootings because, um, you know, you have to look really hard to find a case where a background check would have stopped a mass shooting. 
Um, and that may be one of them, except the guy would have obtained firearms in some other method, just like they always do elsewhere. I firmly believe that. But the difference there, the difference with the case in Texas, is that was a military court. And and that's those aren't the lowest learners of the world, right? That's a different process. And, I, and let me tell you my dystopian future of why I don't want any executive agency. And by the way, this fixed mix bill says all executive agencies, like anywhere. I mean, the Forestry Service, for instance, if they had a name, they should they would have to turn it over. They wouldn't be um, left out of this fixed mix bill. So my dystopian future is you have the Department of Education who keeps records at some point and submits them based on your behavior when you were 12 years old. You have the uh, the IRS maybe that has some kind of records that would pertain to it or health and human services, by the way, when, when we have one, a one-payer system and the government has all the records, now you can have the health and human services adjudicating your Second Amendment rights. And it would all have been strengthened by the six NICs. Now, let me be clear, those are all hypotheticals. What is not hypothetical is it's going on at the VA today, today, Daniel, and it's going to happen tomorrow, and it's going to get worse if this fix next passes. No, definitely. And I know we're running out of time. One of the things I wanted to cover for our audience here is you've spoken a lot about the dangers of denying um, people Second Amendment rights without due process based on, you know, just bogus uh, contention that they're not financially, uh, you know, competent. But isn't there also a separate problem with the system of false positives just completely oh. random people being put on the list. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, the late Senator Ted Kennedy was denied boarding an airplane five times because he had a name that matched a, uh, some kind of terrorist or something. The problem with the, the, the NICS database is there's so many false positives. Uh, just, just, the, just yesterday, I heard my colleague on the floor say, uh, you know, they made it raise a point of order, and said that there were like 170 felons every day being stopped from buying a weapon with uh, fixed NIC or with the uh, NICS background system. Well, that multiplies out to like 62,000 a year, and it's this ridiculous number that adds up to 3 million. Well, like only about one in a thousand, roughly one in a thousand of those are ever pursued for prosecution. So I leave it to you to decide if those are really felons that are committing a crime by trying to buy a firearm, or if those were innocent citizens. I mean, there's whole categories of mistakes they make, like somebody whose name looks similar or sounds similar to somebody that's a felon. And by the way, when you get into that, now we believe, John Lott believes, and I've been trying to get the information from the ATF, by the way, the left says that Congress doesn't want to study the gun issue. Well, the, the executive branch agencies won't turn over the information to us but John Lott believes, and I think he's got a basis for believing this, that the, the Nick's background check uh, discriminates against minorities because a lot of them have similar names. And if you look at the percentage of uh, young black males who are locked up and have similar names to, to those who are not locked up, you're going to see that wow. you can anticipate that a lot of them are, would be denied if they go try to buy a firearm based on the failures that we see every day there. I mean, I hate to be gross here, but I mean, the name Ted Cruz, you know, obviously shares yeah. the last name of, of unfortunately, this, uh, you know, Parkland uh, monster. Um, 
you know, the reality is Hispanics as well. You have our audience is very familiar with the fact that, you know, there is a very high percentage of criminal aliens that have come across the border um, and they are very prominent in the federal system. Forty four point. I'm just doing this off the cuff, as you mentioned, this forty four point two percent of all federal convictions in the entire federal criminal justice system from 2011 to 2016 um, were non-citizens. Um, not all Hispanics, but uh, you would imagine though uh, the majority of them probably were. Right. Um, so if you're in the federal system and you're here, you're a regular legal, you know, a c- citizen uh, that has is of Hispanic uh, ancestry, and you have a name Martinez, Gonzalez, whatever, um, you're going to match up with a lot of those guys. That's right, and so you're going to be deprived of this. I think John Lott is on to something big here. I'm trying to get the information from the ATF; they won't come off of it. Because they record, they record race on the form, and so they've got that information, and, and you can release it in an anonymous format. Thomas, if you're the majority leader now, you're the speaker. What's your legislative response? What What would you be pushing now? Oh. Well, I've got a bill that I've introduced. The first thing of Congress for three Congresses in a row ever since I've been here. Uh, it's H.R. 34, the Safe Students Act. It would repeal the Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act because, uh, number one, it's constitution, unconstitutional, the Federal Gun-Free School Zones Act, in my opinion. In fact, it was struck down once by the Supreme Court, and then Congress tweaked it and passed it again by uh, putting in a little thing to say any firearm that's traveled in interstate commerce is then, you know, then you're part of that crime. We should strike that down. The solution... Frankly, I mean, it was, there was a total abject failure of uh, government in Florida at that shooting. But I think to rely on more government is not the answer. I mean, there are people that think we need more law, and there are people that think we needed more police there um, at the school. The reality is the number of fatalities is proportional to the response time. And the only way you get the fatalities down low in a situation like that is to get the response time under 30 seconds. And the only way you're going to get under 30 seconds is to have more than one person who is there armed. And so I believe the answer is to, to arm teachers, not, not in a way that, you know, not to force them to be armed. But 8% of Americans outside of New York and California have concealed carry permits. I would presume about 8% of teachers already have them and have a firearm. That would be plenty. If you had eight five, or even just 5 or 4% of teachers and faculty armed, these school shootings would become a thing of the past because the next two would end up with a dead perpetrator right there in the lobby uh, when he tried to take out his first victim. And um, that wouldn't glorify their death at all. It would be a miserable failure and that's how it would go down in history. And when somebody sees a couple of those in the news cycle, I think you're going to see this go down considerably. It's for, not the end. For, for sure. I mean, a lot of this is a copycat notoriety thing, which the media, of course, they'll, they'll never, uh, you know, give up on their ratings to, you know, to not promote this. But um, the advent of social media, there's no question. And there's definitely a big part of this. And you're right. The less you glorify it, the more it, it would, it would, um, you know, people would be dissuaded. I, I look at Israel and, you know, they got obviously problems with suicide bombings and all sorts of methods of attack. But the one thing I've noticed is that when it comes to shootings, rarely, if ever, do I remember more than two, three people going down. Mm-hmm. 
in any individual attack. Often it's you know I, I I asked the Columbine survivor who had been shot there. I said, "What do you think would stop this?" And and he's also frustrated that people are talking about trying to reduce the likelihood, but no, very few people are talking about stopping it. Right? How to solve it? He he said, and he's not a legislator, but this this sounds kind of common sense. Even if you couldn't put it into law, he said, if he were a rich man, he'd offer a million dollar reward for the first person to shoot the first uh, teacher to shoot one of these uh, would be perpetrators as they were you know committing the crime. And he said. And what? And after that, I'd find another million and and uh, offer the reward again. He said, "I think after two million dollars, the problem would be solved." That was the, that's an interesting perspective. Obviously, he's not proposing that in a completely serious fashion. But what he means is the same thing that you're saying, which and that I was saying earlier is that once once this gets out, that you're going to die quickly when you go in and try and do one of these scenarios, then it's going to stop. By the way, there are already schools that have armed teachers. Um, states can create an exemption um, in, f- from the federal school free, uh, you know, gun free school zones, um, and some have. And the ones that have, you haven't heard about a shooting there, have you? Because they put up signs outside that say some staff are, and, and uh, teachers and faculty are armed. Exactly, and they don't know which ones are armed, so there's no particular. Which target. is much more. Much more powerful deterrent than having one uh, one resource officer. And, and I think I'd just like to close with the fact that I mean, what bothers me is I said this from day one. I actually refuse to do media interviews on this issue, even from conservative talk radio, because I just said this is not a public policy issue on a federal level. Fundamentally, I don't want to politicize it now. I mean, two weeks later, they you know it's politicized up the wazoo. But the reality is, not everything has. You know, we believe in our God, we believe in his divine providence, and there are going to be problems. And in a free country, um, heck, it took decades to even get the Secret Service to the point where the president is pretty much, you know, fully, fully protected. It's very hard to prevent any random person from 325 million, especially someone who doesn't care about himself getting killed, which is usually the case. They usually do wind up dying. This case was a little different. Um but the best you can do is ensure that you don't have a shooting gallery um, and, you know, 17, 20, 30 people get killed and you, you limit it to as, as few casualties, casualties as possible. Yeah, maybe a couple injuries. I mean, you can't you obviously can't shoot somebody, a, a student just for brandishing a gun. But once they fire the first shot at an individual, I think it's time to engage that person and uh Again, it's proportional to response time. And if you can get that down below 30 seconds, here's the thing. Police know this, too. And the most underreported statistic is how many police officers favor concealed carry. And and it's a, it's a majority. I mean, when you when you when you look at the polls, when this question has been asked, a majority of police support concealed carry for, you know, a law abiding adults because they know they can't get there. And they in time. You know, and I'll let you go after this. This is just – you brought up something that is driving me nuts. If you had a Republican Party with a counter-narrative that wanted to completely engage in political jujitsu on this, here's what I don't I, – I totally don't get this. So even if you want to suggest that somehow on the front end with background checks, you could prevent someone from – a bad guy from getting a gun. Let's just indulge that for a minute. Nobody could suggest – that once you have it 
and you're committed to committing a mass murder, that somehow the fact that you can't carry it concealed be like, man, I want to kill a bunch of people, but how do I get it there? Um, I mean, especially because it's so hard to get caught concealed carry. I mean, that's very hard. It's only, I mean, that is exclusively, by definition, targeting law-abiding people. Um, no one else is going right. to follow that. Um, if you're, you know, they, they talked about domestic violence and how reciprocity is going to hurt uh, someone from going from one uh, state to another. I'm thinking, if, if I'm going to go to another state from uh, New Hampshire to Massachusetts, I think that was their example, New Hampshire has loose gun laws, Massachusetts tough gun laws. I'm going to beat the hell out of my ex-wife. Oh, but man, I, but I, how do I get it there? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm ready yeah. to strangle her and beat her. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, I'm, right. not, I'm, I'm not going to be willing to risk just concealing it when I'm, it's almost impossible to get caught. I mean, why is no one making that case that, at, like you said, at least if you're going to do the fix, Nicks, let's shove it right down their throats and do reciprocity. Oh, uh, and, and any number of things that you could do. I mean, we should. That's what I'm doing, Daniel. Today, I am introducing a bill to lower the age to buy a handgun from 21 to 18. Because if you are old enough to be drafted into service, into the military, if you are old enough to vote and decide who should be, who should be allowed an abortion and who should not at what age, then by golly, you are a part of the adult society. And if they want to raise the age to buy a long gun, somebody's got to be able to buy a gun. Otherwise, we're going to be in an unconstitutional situation. So I'm, I'm introducing a bill today, later today, to um, allow, to re- reduce the age from 21 to 18 um, that's required to purchase a gun from an FFL. Exactly. If we're going to make this about AR... You know, ARs and all sorts of so-called assault weapons will then at least uh, lower the barriers to handguns. And, and let me tell you something, Thomas, being from Baltimore, they're not going to want to start attacking handguns um, because the problem is here. All the fatalities in Baltimore, which is now the murder capital of America, come from handguns. And guess what? Not only do you have forget about background checks here where I'm from, you have to have a license and a two month process to initially own to purchase not to carry you're not allowed to carry but to purchase a weapon and right my, after my they heart feels that, for you <laughs> right after they passed that in 2013 baltimore became the murder capital of america so um, well and as, as long as it's a, it's it's stupid state legislators and not stupid stupid federal legislators you have the option to move <laughs> but that's the problem with these bills at the federal level is they give you nowhere to go Wow, so much wisdom, Thomas. Really uh, honored for you. Just so much generosity with your time here. I asked for 20 minutes. You gave me more than a half an hour. Our audience is going to eat this up. Thank you so much for fighting the fight and obviously keep us abreast uh, as to more legislation that you're going to be pushing. Hey, Daniel, thank you for covering this issue. I know you said, you know, what was it earlier in the podcast? You said you weren't going to cover these issues at the federal level, but. Again, somebody needs to. There are a lot of people waiting outside the school, you know, to use a a metaphor and not ready to rush into the school. But these the liberals are acting quickly and they are racking up casualties on the Bill of Rights. And somebody's got to respond. You are one of the first responders and you're never afraid to go in the building. So I appreciate what you do. Well, thank you so much, and God bless. There you go, folks. That was Thomas Massey, representative from 
Kentucky's 4th Congressional District. That is in northern Kentucky. And he is also the chairman of the Second Amendment Caucus. And for him, as you can tell, the Second Amendment is not just a talking point, as it is for all these Republicans that are pushing gun control. Um, Lots of really smart information there. A lot of things I learned from this interview. I hope you did as well. Um, It's great to know somebody is fighting for us. Somebody is providing this counter-narrative. Unfortunately, he doesn't have a leadership platform, does not control the floor. Uh, But, you know, we're going to see what happens. Keep your eye on Thomas Massey and see what he does on this issue because nobody is giving our side of the story. And you know, I just want to close with just an observation. It has been months since the twin attacks, terror attacks we had in this country from individuals who came in through chain migration and diversity visa lottery. And in addition, there's a number of uh, thwarted attacks or a number of people arrested for conspiring with ISIS or similar terrorism-related charges that came in through the diversity lottery, and there is not a single impetus on the part of Republicans to make that an issue. You know, there's one thing if every every time the Democrats politicize an event, Republicans say, hey, you want us to jump how high we're going to pass your legislation, but then we're going to harness our news stories to pass our bills because, after all, we do control the floor when we are, you know, we're in the majority in the House and Senate. But no, nothing. Nothing on sanctuary cities, nothing on diversity visa lottery. And and, and again, I'll say it again. I said it a hundred times. Immigration is an elective policy that is avoidable. That is, when you talk about, let's do something. We got to do something. That is avoidable. We're never going to completely stop evil in our country, but we can almost completely eradicate it from being imported because you just don't bring them in. And to the extent you bring them in, you immediately get rid of criminal aliens. Instead, we have hundreds of thousands of them. Um, some of the worst elements of criminals are foreign nationals, and we just uh, allow them to roam free and allow sanctuary cities to continue harboring them. But when it comes to this, the best we can do is empower everyone to ensure that if, God forbid, we have more of these attacks, they're gunned down as soon as possible, and it's not just a disgraceful shooting gallery like we've seen in so many of these cases. We'll have a lot more on this issue and many others. Thanks so much for for listening, and also send me your feedback. Send me uh, who you want to bring on, who else you want to hear from, which voices do you want to hear from. You know, Maybe it would be great to bring on John Lott. But until next time, God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.